0: Coming up on today's show, it is over. Liz Truss, the shortest tenured prime minister in the history of the UK, gone after 45 days. We'll also talk about TikTok, how educators are using it. Maybe that's not the best idea. And a fascinating discussion about when is an organ donor really dead? So it's been a wild, well, it's been a wild, I don't know. (laughs) probably four or five months in British politics, but it's gotten crazier as we've gone along, reaching an absolute peak last night um, with, I mean, some of the stories coming out of Westminster were crazy. Like this person had resigned. Oh no, they didn't. This is a confidence vote. Oh no, it's not. I mean, it was nuts. It was absolute nuts. I don't think anybody really knew what was going on. In the end, as it all gets wrapped up today, Liz Truss is out. She's only been Prime Minister of the UK for a grand total of 45 days. She now becomes the shortest tenured Prime Minister in the history of the country, gone. Um, So what's next? Uh, There's all kinds of amazing stories about that too. So let's try and get a bit of a breakdown here. We're going to chat with Nicholas Allen, a reader in politics at Royal Holloway University in London, England. Uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
1: Pleasure. pleasure
0: let's just start by going back through the very short stormy tenure of Liz truss and and her downfall I mean she only took over from Boris Johnson 45 days ago and she was really ambitious and it turned to be a, uh, her undoing right
1: yeah I mean it, it's I'm afraid your, your, your introduction almost doesn't do it justice it's been completely nuts <laughs> um, Completely insane. I mean, Harold Wilson said, the former British Prime Minister, a week is a long time in politics. I mean, at the moment, a morning is a long time in British (laughs) politics. Absolutely crazy. I mean, my goodness, yes, it it all, 45 days ago, so much has happened then. The Queen dying. um, Yeah. I mean, that in itself took up a large chunk of it. It makes you so (laughs) the wheels began falling off fairly quickly shortly after that, once the funeral had passed and the mini-budget, or really a budget, but it's called a mini-budget, was announced by her then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, essentially giving up um, billions of unfunded tax cuts. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was that, that, this, in a sense, it was, it was a move that had been trailed in her leadership campaign. She, she was elected Conservative leader in part because she promised this optimistic tax cutting agenda but the what the extent of the cuts the, the the billions that were sort of unfunded unaccounted for the fact that it was done through sleights of hand by not publishing office of budget responsibility paperwork to uh, predict what was going to be the consequences the fact that she um, her government had sacked the senior civil servant in the treasury uh, who might have been regarded as a possible obstacle for this kind of courageous announcement I mean it just it set the the markets um yeah, they crashed it set uh, that's completely i mean you <laughs> tanked the tanked the pound on the markets it tanked um, confidence in voters confidence in the government and it ultimately tanked conservative mp's confidence in the prime minister i mean uh, what a roller coaster and yeah i mean 40 uh, the shortest
0: premiership in British history, and one of the most eventful, should we say? So uh, I, I don't know how it got to the point. What happened? Last, do you understand what what went on yesterday that led to well, this? I mean, it was. It sounds like it was completely bonkers.
1: It was. It was completely bonkers. I mean, I, I, I've been. I watched the the resignation announcement with my students in the class, which is the most exciting seminar I think I've ever taught. <laughs> I mean, you, you, if you go, I think you need to go back to next Friday. I know that seems like ancient news now, but next, sorry, last Friday, not next Friday. Last Friday, uh, Liz Truss sacked her Chancellor of the Exchequer, the man who announced the unfunded tax cuts. Uh, he was brought back in a hurry from New York and summarily dismissed. That led to a run in, on Theresa May, uh, sorry, not Theresa May, a run on Liz Truss <laughs> and a run on confidence in her. And she appointed Jeremy Hunt as the new Conservative Chancellor. He sort of steadied the ship a little bit. Um, he's seen as a sort of a, as a, a more pragmatic, more sensible politician than Quasi Quartain, the former Chancellor. He immediately sort of started talking to the markets, trying to, to calm things down. Then on Monday there was an urgent question in the House of Commons about the sacking of quasi-quarting. Liz Truss did not answer that question. She sent in Penny Morden to answer it on her behalf, which of course got tongues wagging about what was, earth was going on there. Then there was the um, sort of a, an almost a mini, mini budget to undo the damage of the mini budget that Jeremy Hunt announced <laughs> in a short statement. And by this point, it looked like she was potentially, well, Certainly not out of the woods, but things had calmed down a little bit. Tuesday was almost banal. And then Wednesday morning was great. Nothing happened Wednesday morning. And then Wednesday afternoon, firstly during Prime Minister's questions, uh, Liz Truss U-turned on a U-turn. So originally, Jeremy Hunt had uh, said that we're not going to rule out how pensions increase as a type of inflation. Liz Truss then said, no, we're absolutely going to increase pensions in line with inflation. There then followed the sudden, unexpected sacking of Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, who, who had leaked a, a government document on her... Pro- or, you, no, used her private email account to send someone who shouldn't have received a government document a government document, and then... Where are we? Thursday. Yes. So this was all yesterday (laughs) afternoon, and then of course there was a vote in the House of Commons on something on fracking. Basically, the Conservatives had campaigned against doing any more fracking in their 29 manifesto. It's something that a lot of Conservative MPs in rural seats really don't like. You don't tend to get fracking in urban areas where Labour does well. You tend to get it in Conservative seats and. The government had then made, apparently made it a confidence vote. So MPs had to absolutely vote against um, the Labour motion saying that we should ban fracking. And then then uh, towards the end, it was suggested that maybe they hadn't made it a confidence vote. And then there was a lot of argy-bargy in the division lobbies in the House of Commons when there were, you know, Currently, I'm not gonna swear on radio, don't worry, but the, the deputy chief whip and yeah. the chief whip both resigned, with the deputy chief <laughs> chief of saying, I've I've effing, had enough of this effing nonsense to all intents and purposes. Yeah. But then they didn't resign, they unresigned, and oh, I mean absolute pandemic. It was a farce. The absolutely fast. <laughs> I've never in my life seen anything approaching this in British politics. I mean it's <sighs> talk about a banana republic yeah. <laughs> banana republic absolutely crazy yeah Sadiq so today today that
0: the the, the laughing stock at the international mayors conference he's attending
1: i, I think um, I, I mean i don't i think people are shell shocked people at westminster are shell shocked people watching westminster are shell shocked it's it's yeah absolutely it, you you couldn't have lifted out it's, it's a more absurd plot. Yeah, than exactly. What you would get in in a satirical comedy.
0: But but it's not over, Nicholas. I mean, you're talking about an absurd plot. I'm hearing Boris Johnson could be the prime minister again next weekend. Is that? I mean, is this? There's some well, truth there, right? He says he will be interested well, in doing that. I it's it's
1: I've not heard anything directly from him. As far as that, last thing I knew, of his whereabouts was via Twitter that he was on a beach somewhere in the Caribbean. <laughs> the Now. It's a lot, lots of, I mean, inevitably, lots of rumour and speculation. This is going to be a one-week leadership contest. It's yeah. going to be done very, very quickly. I imagine the Conservative Party would like it done even quicker. So there will probably... I- I haven't heard yet how they can organize it, but I wouldn't be surprised if they raise the nomination threshold to make it much harder for non-serious candidates to stand. They they want it over as quickly as possible with the smallest number of very plausible candidates. Now, Boris Johnson may or may not fancy his chances. It may be that he's still sunning himself on the Caribbean and laughing his... Yeah, he might do it just for a lark, Nicholas. I could see that. He, he might do, but he's got nothing to gain by doing it. He, he, he will suddenly spe- won't be able to start earning or he'll have to stop taking hundreds of thousands of pounds for giving speeches, which he needs. He needs the money. And also, whoever's going to become prime minister next, the next Conservative Party leader, is, is doomed to fail. I yeah. think that the, the likelihood of the Conservatives winning the next general election, given the way the polls are at the moment, given the way the economy is likely to go, given all the other challenges that they're going to be dealing with I think is next to zero so Boris Johnson has nothing to gain by coming back he's also absolutely tainted I mean the guy left yeah. he fell on a sword that he had planted in the ground with his frequent and myriad ethical lapses the, the guy is was not morally fit to be prime minister and a lot of conservative MPs know that so I, I, I wouldn't be too excited about maybe him coming back I mean if he does then I think we deserve to be dressed up as a as, a, as the international jester, frankly. Um, but there are other other serious, uh, more perhaps more realistic candidates. I mean, Rishi Sunak, who was the defeated candidate um, in the most re- in, in the last contest against Liz Truss. Uh, lots of speculation about him standing. Lots of speculation about Penny Mordaunt. She stood in yeah, for Theresa yeah. May when, Sorry, Liz Truss, not Theresa May. Liz <laughs> Truss. When Liz Truss was not hiding under a desk, that was something else that was talked
0: about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then um, Jeremy Hunt's not like has already, I think, ruled it.
0: He says he's out, yeah, he, he's not interested. Uh, Nicholas, you still there? Oh, We lost Nicholas. Um, I wanted to ask him about the fact, I, I think the only way this ends is in a general election. I really do, uh, I don't know, but, but Nicholas, thank you. Uh, I think that's a pretty good uh, take on exactly what happened in British politics. Um, wild, wild stuff. Generation TikTok is where it's at. It's all the rage right now. Uh, I know my kids like TikTok. I know Sarah likes TikTok. Uh, It's big among young people. So if you are trying to connect and communicate with young people, makes sense that that would be a place that you want to be. So now we are seeing teachers all over TikTok. Is that a good idea? Will that work? Let's find out. We're going to chat with uh, Dr. Paul Bennett now, who is the director of Halifax-based firm Schoolhouse Institute also an adjunct professor of education at St. Mary's University. Dr. Bennett, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time.
2: Great to be with you, Shay.
0: So on the surface here, doctor, it, it makes good sense, right? If, if young people are on TikTok a lot, and they're really leaning into any specific source for communication, it, it's important that educators be there, right? I can understand that thing.
2: Yes, but most of it is silly nonsense. Well, that's the thing. And uh, that, that's the point of my article, which was on TikTok brain and the neurological changes that have occurred during the pandemic and the effect that it's having on the capacity of not only uh, children but teachers to learn. We've all been affected. And my point is simply this that TikTok brain is a clinical condition. There's a serious problem with teen addiction to social media. Mm-hmm. It's time we confronted it, and it's had impacts on neurological conditions. It's made it increasingly difficult to engage in structured learning. And with the priority on uh, teaching, shall we say, structured literacy, it's increasingly difficult. So while I applaud teachers for using it as a motivational tool, I think its overuse is a danger. And we have enough clinical evidence, and we actually have a diagnosis. It's called tick-tock brain it's okay. makes us less inclined to focus, more inclined to jump to conclusions, and to form snap judgments on things. It doesn't leave enough time for serious discussion, and it's affecting our habits of attention.
0: And that's a function of the way that platform has been built, right? I mean, the focus of that platform is engagement and, and quick hits, right?
2: Exactly. But uh, if you think about it, the smartphone is actually an instrument of distraction. Continual beeps, all kinds of messages coming in, a steady uh, flow of uh, tweets, um, text messages. Um, It was actually designed to be disruptive Mm -hmm. in the classroom, and yet we're left with technology that we have to adapt for educational purposes.
0: Um, And as you say, that presents massive challenges. Is there a way of doing that? That's the question, I guess, Dr. Bennett. Is there a way of incorporating our smartphones and social media platforms to be beneficial rather than a detriment, as you describe?
2: Yes, of course there is, but the CBC national story that we're talking about here seemed to indicate that it was It was something that was uh, all pleasant and was going to be a benefit, and uh, what a wonderful thing it was to see TikTok being used in schools. I noticed they didn't interview any teachers. They uh, certainly uh, did not look at the evidence where um, there's evidence that our brain functions and our capacity to concentrate is is really at risk. And after two and a half years of a pandemic, with so much emphasis on getting back to studying and and uh, routines. I have to ask, is TikTok really the answer to the challenges we face in education?
0: Uh, fair question. Absolutely. But if it's not, and I agree with you that it's definitely not, what is? I mean, uh, because if that, like you say, I mean, it's not just disruptive, doctor, it's really all-consuming. I mean, I've got a, an eight, a 19-year-old and a 21-year-old, so they're not in uh, the public exactly. education system anymore, but I know how much time. I mean, they're they're constantly looking at their phones, so it's not just disruptive; it's all consuming. How do you counter that? Like you're saying, it's it's been damaging. How do we turn that around? Well, there's
2: two things we need to weigh here. First of all, we want to engage students and catch their interest. That is the value of something like TikTok. Okay, but let's make no mistake about it. It is just of an appetizer. It's not the main menu. And if it becomes and it eats up more and more of the time in the classroom, it uh, undercuts learning and stands in the way of learning. So let's put it this way. I make an argument in my article, which was in The Hub, for um, introducing uh, teaching methodologies that focus on habits of attention. I think the kids need to have some practice with habits of attention. And there's, um, you know, teach, teach like a champion in the United States has a series of lesson activities that teachers can use to develop habits of attention in the class. And if we ever needed that, it was now, yeah. after two and a half years of disruptions, after teachers, uh, teachers coming back, trying to settle their classes down, establish some routines, and actually accomplish something. I, um, I don't think that TikTok by itself hurts learning. I think it's undermining the learning process, if it can't be controlled and contained, and we know what happened when cell phones got introduced sure. into the classroom, they essentially have taken over, whether it's officially or unofficially, whether it's in the desks or in their pockets. Or, uh, for, exa- for example, uh, texting. It's just a um, continuous stream. Yep. And in my article, I, I make the point that this is a continuous stream of dopamine reactions and it makes teachers look like they're talking slowly. It's like a teacher's in slow motion mm-hmm. when you look at them, and uh, no teacher can compete with TikTok.
0: So, like you say, it can be the appetizer, it can be the, the start of something. How can a teacher use that? I mean, you've got a very limited amount of time. How do you? Is it sort of trying to, to plant a seed or, or uh, set the hook and then have the curiosity spark to go further?
2: exactly uh, there it's called a hook every good practiced skilled teacher has a hook to attract students and get their attention but if that becomes the entire menu <laughs> yeah. we've got a problem and unfortunately the way it was presented you know in the national news there it seemed like well it was the answer well it's far from the answer because as I pointed out it's fleeting images yep um, often um, certain political messages buried in them, and it's hard to um, deprogram it. Uh, For example, I used to use uh, heritage minutes. That's one minute of historical um, reenactments. But it took me at least an hour to break those down, and I was finding that the students didn't get a whole lot out of them. This was grade 9 and 10. Unless you broke them down and analyzed them almost frame by frame, And they got a sense, oh, my goodness, these are packed with messages and interpretations that we need to unpack.
0: So it started it, yeah. Uh, Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for your time. I'm unfortunately out of time, but I really appreciate you joining us today.
2: Yes, I'm trying to slow things down. Yeah,
0: I hear you. I'm with you. I
2: don't think that teachers want to compete with TikTok.
0: can't. You can't. You're absolutely right. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. That is Dr. Paul Bennett, who is the director of Halifax-based firm Schoolhouse Institute and an adjunct professor of education at St. Mary's University. right now that uh, to me is fascinating. It is. Uh, I won't do it justice as I try and explain to you what we're talking about here, but there's a bit of an ethical debate that is raging in the organ transplant community around the world. Um, to my understanding, and this is like below layman's understanding at best, uh, it's a new procedure that it kind of has opened the door to a debate about when a potential organ donor is truly dead, for lack of a better term. I mean, it's much more complex and much more technical than that. So let's get in somebody who, who actually knows and can help us walk through this, because it, it really, really is interesting. We're going to be chatting now with Dr. Charles Ware, who's actually taking a lead in helping our government try and figure this out. He's a professor of medicine and philosophy at Western University. Dr. Weir, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
3: Hi Shay, it's a it's a pleasure to meet you, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me on your show.
0: Really interesting conversation, and I and I'm sure I did an absolutely horrible job of explaining what we're going to be talking about here. So let's just start. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> let's just start with the procedure at hand and what's changed everything. What is the procedure that we're talking about?
3: Yeah, so we're we're talking about a new a new organ donation technology uh, that's not used in Canada yet, but but it holds a lot of promise. So it's it's uh, it's got a big long technical name, but it's called NRP, and it's a new kind of perfusion technology that seeks to increase uh, the quality and number of organs that that, that can be retrieved. So, so Shea, I'm sure as you know, I mean there are over 4,000 Canadians uh, waiting for uh, on the organ uh, organ well, on the organ uh, transplant yeah, wait list. Yeah. And uh, there simply aren't enough aren't enough organs to meet this need. Every three days in Ontario, someone on the organ wait list actually dies waiting waiting for a transplant. So we need to find new and innovative ways to increase the number of uh, organs available for transplant in Canada. And NRP is is a new and and promising technology.
0: And that technology, um, as we said, basically it improves what, the, uh, the number of organs or the likelihood that the transplant will be successful? It, it basically improves the quality of the organ. Is that a way of putting it? Yeah, no, I think you've got that exactly right. So about three
3: quarters uh, of organs in Canada that are transplanted come from people um, after they've died who, who have made a, a decision prior to death to donate, donate their organs. An increasing number of those are coming from people uh, who've... Undergone a planned death in the intensive care unit. So they had an illness uh, which had a very poor prognosis, and uh, the decision was made to withdraw life support. Uh, Under those circumstances, the respirator is turned off, life support is withdrawn, and the patient uh, has a cardiac arrest. Five minutes is waited, the so called five minute hands off period, and then the person is declared dead. And then, provided that they've consented or their families consented, then uh, they go on uh, to have their organs retrieved. The problem is, though, because uh, the circulation has stopped, because the heart has stopped, because the, the, the ventilator has been turned off, during that dying process and the five-minute hands-off period, those organs aren't getting blood and oxygen. And so a lot of damage is done at that time, And up to 70% of those organs actually can't be used to help other people. So this is where NRP comes in. NRP basically involves hooking up uh, a part of uh, the donor's body after death, say the abdomen or the chest and the abdomen, to a machine. Now this machine does the work of the heart and the lungs And it circulates oxygenated blood to those organs in the abdomen or the chest and abdomen uh, to prevent them being damaged during that process. The the hope is that it will lead to organs of increased quality being retrieved and perhaps even uh, improved long-term outcomes for organ recipients.
0: And, and and the rub here, and the issue is, okay, if you're doing that and you're restoring blood and oxygen to the organs, for lack of a better term, is the patient truly dead at that point, right? And there is concern that you're almost reanimating somebody who ha- may have passed away, but now you're hooking up. I mean, explain that part of it. The, the the ethical dilemma around this.
3: It's a it's a it's a really difficult question, Shea. So so remember now, these are patients who were declared dead. On the basis that their circulation had permanently stopped, right? And now we're hooking them up to basically a heart-lung machine that's restoring circulation. So, so ethicists have asked: Does that, does that somehow, does restoring circulation somehow invalidate um, the, the 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 terms on which they were declared dead? Even more complicated when we use when we use NRP and connect it to both the chest and the abdomen, organs in the chest and the abdomen, after about 30 minutes of running that heart-lung machine, the donor's heart will actually start beating again. Oh, boy. And, you know, I think many people <laughs> hearing that would sort of say, well, wait a minute. They were declared dead based on the fact that their heart had permanently stopped, and now you're saying that their heart is going to start again. Were they, were they really right. dead?
0: Well, exactly. So uh, now this is, uh, technology is emerging and countries are deciding that very question. And, and some have said, yeah, no, we're not, it's just not going to happen here, right? Didn't Australia say we're not using this? Yeah,
3: that, that, that's right, Shay. Of course, the technology is used in other countries. Spain has been using it uh, for a number of years, the United Kingdom. There are a number of centers uh, in the United States uh, using, using NRP. You know, I think in Canada, we're taking a more cautious approach. And um, colleagues and I have argued that, that look, you know, um, the most valuable thing here is the trust that Canadians hold in our organ donation system. So whatever yeah. changes we make, we need to make sure that trust is, is preserved. So we've argued that, that if NRP is used in Canada, we, we ought to start only with the kind of NRP that, that circulates blood and oxygen to organs in, in the abdomen, simply because, um, you know, there isn't that problem of the heart starting. It's not going to change
0: what we define as being alive or dead.
3: Well, you know, I think, I think a number of things need to happen here, Shay, before, before we can really look at uh, beginning to use NRP in Canada. One is we need to take a careful look at, at the guidelines that are in place in order to define death. Yeah. You know, this, this technology has really, has really changed, has really raised questions of, well, what counts? If, if circulation is being driven purely externally by a machine, is, is, is that what we mean by alive? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think what we need to do here is, is re-examine those guidelines. There are also questions here of donor safety that I think require um, a closer look. So when surgeons use NRP, they, they take precautions to make sure that blood flow is only restored to a region of the body, and they take steps to make sure that there's no blood flow to the brain. But, you know, how do we really know that there isn't blood flow through, through alternative, um, alternative routes? That really hasn't been examined carefully in other countries, so I think we need very careful studies looking at NRP in a research setting here to monitor the brain, to make sure that there's absolutely no blood flow to the brain. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, um, you know, if there's blood flow restored to the brain, there's a concern. Uh, I think it's fairly un- unlikely, but there's a concern that brain function could become reanimated as a result. And that, of course, would be contrary to the donor's wishes. I think, thirdly, there are questions here about consent. Uh, what do families need to know here? If, if, the, if the patient has, has consented to organ donation, is that enough? Or, or do families need to provide specific consent to the use of this new perfusion technology? If so, when do we tell them? How much do they need to know? Uh, these, are, these are all really important questions that need to be addressed before we use NRP in Canada.
0: Yeah, What a, what, what a puzzle to be working on, though, Doctor. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it really is fascinating. And, and like you say, there are so many different avenues to go down and explore. And uh, it, it's amazing. What do you think in terms of a timeline when Canada may come up with a policy on this?
3: Well, you know, uh, the group that I lead at, at Western University, we're, we're working with uh, uh, Canadian Blood Services, we're working with Trillium Gift of Life Network, um, our organ donation organization in Ontario. Uh, we're working with uh, donor family uh, physicians uh, who care for uh, both donors and transplant recipients in order to work through these ethical issues. We're interviewing um, organ donor families, we're interviewing recipients, to ask them the really important questions. What do you need to see to make sure that your trust in the organ donation system is, is preserved? You know, my hope would be that, that we would move towards um, clarity on, on the definition of, of death uh, in, in the next, uh, in, over the next year or two, and that we would also see in the research setting, potentially the use of abdominal NRP um, to do those crucial studies to make sure that uh, donor safety is, is ensured.
0: Amazing. Such an interesting conversation, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Shay. It was absolutely my pleasure.
0: Really appreciate it. That's Dr. Charles Ware, who is a professor of medicine and philosophy at Western University. And imagine in 2022 having to sit down and come up with a definitive definition of death and one that we can all agree on thanks for listening today to hear any of our other interviews you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast And if you like what you hear don't forget to rate and review us